Thank you, Otis. I got to say, I agree with Pastor Otis. Uh, a lot of great stuff to celebrate going on in the life of our church. I thought this week uh, was fantastic. I was so grateful uh, for how you participated and how you served. Uh, I was humbled by that. I was so proud of this uh, congregation. Uh, I'm looking forward to the baptism celebration that we have coming up. We're going to do it here on campus. And I know many of you have crossed, uh, some of you have crossed the line of faith this year. You've chosen to follow Jesus as the Savior and as the authority for your life and your next step is to get baptized. We want to celebrate that. And I know that there are many others who, you, this has been something you've been waiting on, you've been thinking about for a long, long time. And now would be a great time to take that step. We want to celebrate with you. Our church is growing. We're, I mean, I'm just over, I'm excited about this. Are you excited? Yeah. Okay, there we go. I love that. I love that. But I want to talk vulnerably also. I mean, because sometimes, and this might even be a time, that there would be some people in our church that they would say, Rick, I got to be honest with you, it's hard for me to, to celebrate everything that's going on in the life of our church. Uh, I think a lot of you guys know, but maybe not everybody knows, we have three distinct services each weekend, but we have two different types of services every weekend. We have two of our services, uh, the music is, all, is, is more contemporary or modern. And then one of our services, the music is really more traditional music. Back in November, our worship pastor who was responsible for leading the traditional music, he transitioned to a different church. We celebrated that for him. We celebrated it uh, for that church. But since November of last year, we've been praying, we've been studying, we've been evaluating options. We've really been trying to seek God's face and what would be honoring to God and what is our church's next steps when it comes to setting up worship services and facilitating our weekend services to proclaim Jesus and celebrate him together. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, we announced as a church leadership that we recognize that being able to offer distinct different types of worship services cannot go on indefinitely. If you're hearing that for the very first time right now, that means that you're not getting our weekly newsletter. We've published a couple of articles about this over the past couple of weeks. I want you to be in the know. I want to be a great communicator with you. We want to be very transparent with you. So if you're not getting that weekly newsletter, sign up on our website or stop by the connection desk in the lobby after the service. And there'll be great people who'd love to help you uh, subscribe uh, to that. Now, there's no changes happening right now, but we just recognize that change is coming and change is really a constant for all churches everywhere. And we're going to be pivoting eventually to unified worship. And by unified worship, we mean that all the music will be the same at all three of our services. Um, we're going to sing old songs and new songs, basically what we're doing now. We're going to incorporate a diverse variety of instruments, basically what we're doing now. We're going to continue to do our very best to pursue excellence and beauty and the music that we, that we share and sing. We will have a choir. Uh, believe it or not, Pastor Ian and I have been talking about this for many months. Uh, and we we've always wanted to have a kind of a choir, a multi-generational, multicultural choir, even in uh, modern services. And so that's coming back in the fall. I hope that you'll join the choir. Now, if we were to take all of the changes that we know that are coming and we were just to implement them and never tell you about it, I think most people wouldn't even notice. The people who attend our traditional service predominantly, they're going to be in a better spot to, to identify a number of those differences. But from my heart, I really believe that almost everybody's going to say, this is nowhere near as disruptive as I thought. I think people are going to say, I actually like this. There have been many, many churches who have gone ahead of us, that has made this transition already, and they're reporting back to us that their church is experiencing greater congregational unity than ever. 
Now, we think we can experience the exact same thing. But it would be weird. It would be a weird thing if you didn't have questions about that. It would be a weird thing if there weren't really urgent questions about that. That's why we've published a couple of articles. We put together an FAQ, a Frequently Asked Questions document you can pick up at the connection desk today or at the receptionist desk upstairs. If we run out, we'll print more. Uh, we're also putting it on our website. It'll be in our next uh, weekly newsletter. Also on August 13th, Sunday night, August 13th, we're going to have a church family meeting. You're going to get to hear from our elders, going to get to hear from some pastors, and it's our intent to answer all the questions that people are asking of us. I hope you can be there for that. And I'm asking you, please don't shortchange yourself. Please don't shortchange yourself from engaging all the information and participating in how this process slowly rolls out. But if there's anybody who's feeling just kind of disappointed, I hear you. I've grieved this too. Everybody involved in this process has grieved this. But if there's anybody who's saying, Rick, I just feel so disappointed at this announcement, I'm thinking about leaving our church. I don't want that for anybody. Would you be willing to meet with me if I'm talking to you? Could, could we talk together? I'd love to meet with you, meet with anybody who you want to invite together. Uh, I, I'd just love to hear what you, what you want to share and uh, have the opportunity to answer the questions that are most important to you. Now, for most people, I think a lot of people are going to say this transition is really no biggie. But for some folks, it's going to feel like it's a collision of, of cultures in our church. It might even feel like our church is shifting identities. And this is a really great question to ask. What is the gospel prescription or what is the gospel solution for the turbulence that comes from colliding cultures and shifting identities? This is not new. There was at least one church in the New Testament that experienced this in a major way. And before we can get into how the gospel provided resolution for that, we got to do a little history. So we're going to read Acts 18, verse 1. After this, the Apostle Paul, he left Athens. He went to the city of Corinth. He met a Jewish man named Aquila, who's from Pontus, who had recently come from Italy. Now, this is important. He came from Italy uh, with his wife Priscilla because the emperor of Rome, Claudius, ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. And because three years ago when we experienced all the kind of COVID lockdowns and some of us were able to come back to church sooner than others and others of us needed more time before it was a good idea to gather in large churches, I think that we are better positioned than ever to understand what it was like for all Jewish people to be kicked out of the city of Rome. Jewish people who didn't believe in Jesus, Jewish people who were followers of Jesus. The house churches all around the city of Rome took a major hit all the house churches in the city of Rome, because all the Jewish Christians were kicked out, they lost the majority of their members. They lost their leaders. They lost the majority of their financial givers. It had to be devastating for all of those churches. And the New Testament isn't the only place we can read about this. Suetonius was a Roman historian and this is what he wrote. He said, since the Jews constantly made disturbances at the instigation of Crestus, the Emperor Claudius expelled them from Rome. Now, this took place in the 40s AD. The book of Acts had not been finished and distributed yet. Uh, Roman officials, they didn't understand Christianity. They just knew that Jews were in an uproar. And the way that you would say Jesus Christ in Greek is Jesus Christos. And so Suetonius, he didn't quite understand Christos, so he wrote it down, Crestus. 
And so the Jewish community was in an upheaval. There was disturbances because a lot of Jewish men and women were turning to faith in Jesus. And so there was fighting. And the Emperor Claudius just said, I've had enough with all y'all. All of y'all get out of the city. And what mom hasn't felt that way when the kids were bickering and just said, get out of the house and go play in the yard. I'm done with all y'all. It was not too many years later that Jewish people were invited back into the city of Rome and they returned. Many Jewish Christians returned back to the city of Rome and they went back to their former house churches. And I'm sure there was celebration, but there was conflict too. The word Gentile, it means any person who's not Jewish. So unless you were born Jewish, all of us are Gentiles. And while all the Jews were kicked out of Rome, that meant the churches went, they became 100% Gentile, 0% Jewish. And as these Jewish Christians returned, what once felt like Jewish culture expressing faith in Jesus now felt like Gentile culture expressing faith in Jesus because the gospel was still being preached, churches were growing, and it was only Gentiles coming to faith in Jesus and joining the church in the city of Rome. But now Jews are returning too. And even though we're Gentiles, we're not Jewish, let's try to put ourselves in their shoes. Let's try to be empathetic with them. What was that like? See, when a Jewish person, when they originally came to faith in Jesus, it was disruptive. They were, they were outcasts from their community, but they didn't lose their culture. Do you know why? Because all the churches were Jewish culture. It was predominantly Jewish culture. But now they're returning to their former house churches, and it's not Jewish culture anymore. It's predominantly Gentile culture. Can you imagine how isolating and disorienting and maybe even alienating that must have felt for them? Think about how tempting it must have been to say, well, let's just have Jewish Christian house churches and Gentile Christian house churches. Let's just have Jewish Christian worship services and Gentile Christian worship services. It is impossible. It is impossible for us to overstate the turbulence that came from this collision of different cultures and what felt like shifting identities and house churches in the city of Rome. And this is one of the major reasons that the Apostle Paul wrote his letter to the Roman church, what we consider the book of Romans in the New Testament. So we're going to read part of it today. So if you have a Bible, open it up. We're going to read from Romans chapter 11. If you're still kind of getting familiar with how the Bible is laid out, the second half of it is called the New Testament. Romans is the sixth book. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. Romans is really the magnum opus of the Apostle Paul. Letters in the ancient world uh, were typically less than 100 words in length, probably around 80 words in length. Letters were the size of a tweet. Romans had to, be, had to feel like a book was just delivered to them. It would have been arduous and difficult to construct this. Uh, it would have been very expensive uh, to put it together. But this is his explanation. This is what the gospel is. And this is how the gospel impacts all of life. And this is how the gospel brings resolution and peace to all the things you're experiencing right now. And if we don't understand contextually and culturally what was going on, it's going to be very hard for us to fully appreciate and understand all that the Apostle Paul was trying to communicate through this letter to the Roman church. Where we're going to begin, Romans chapter 11, verse 11, he's immediately talking about Jewish people who've chosen to not have faith in Jesus. This is what he says. Again, I ask, did they stumble? They being Jewish people who don't trust in Jesus. Did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. 
Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches would their full inclusion bring? But I'm talking to you Gentiles. This is what he's saying. Listen, um, this is what God is up to. This is, what, this, is, this is what's going on here. He's talking to the Gentiles that there are many Jews who rejected faith in Jesus that led to disturbance. All the Jews were kicked out of Rome. That was Gentiles, that was to your benefit because you exclusively got to hear the gospel preached to you for a time. And that was great for you. But God doesn't just want you to know. He wants all people to know. And he wants Jewish people to know him through Christ as well. He continues. Inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I take pride in my ministry and the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. For if their rejection brought reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. This is the Apostle Paul's way of saying this is how awesome God is. God used... Jewish people rejecting faith in Jesus as a way to bring the gospel to you. And now God is using you all accepting faith in Jesus as a way to bring the gospel to Jewish people. God is up to something good. He says, I have some branches, excuse me, if some branches have been broken off. You guys have been wondering, why is there a tree up here? You're about to find out. If some branches have been broken off and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root. The root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted. But they were broken off because of unbelief. And you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant. But tremble, for if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. The Apostle Paul is saying that God's people are represented like a tree. And none of us are the trunk or the base of the tree. We're like new branches that have been grafted in from a different tree brought in to be a part of this tree. Jewish people were who God chose to be his people. To represent his holiness and his love to the world. To represent a message of come and worship the God who made you in his image. It started with them. And whenever anyone comes to faith in Jesus, they're like a tree that's a new branch that's grafted in. Now this tree is actually a tree that is one, the base is one thing and the top of it is something different. And if you're having a hard time spotting where that transition changes, that's kind of the point. Because we're all supposed to be new Something new, united as one in Christ. And the Apostle Paul said, Jewish people who didn't believe in Jesus, they're like branches that were broken off, but that's not something that God did to them because they didn't believe that's why they were broken off. But if they would believe in Jesus, they could be grafted in too. If you would believe in Jesus, you could be grafted in and become a permanent part of God's people as well. He says, this is God's plan. He says, consider therefore the kindness and the sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you will also be cut off. And if they did not persist in unbelief, but were grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. After all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature and contrary to nature were grafted into and cultivated into the olive tree, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? Let me translate. 
If you come from some janky wild tree and God can graft you into this beautiful tree in his garden that he's cultivating, if he can do that for me, he can do it for you. And if he could do it for us, he could do it for anybody. This is what God is up to. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. God has a plan. He is up to something. And on one level, it's a mystery. We can't fully, totally, comprehensively understand it all. But we can understand enough. We can understand enough that God is trying to draw all people to himself in faith in Christ. And all people who come to faith in Christ are one united new people. And Paul gets so excited, he's explaining all of this at the end of the chapter. He's just got to take a worship break. In verse 33, he says, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor. Who has ever given to God that God should repay them. For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So let's go back to our question. What is the gospel prescription? What is the gospel solution for the turbulence that comes from colliding cultures and shifting identities? There's at least two parts. The first part is this. Understand our place in God's plan for salvation. We are not the trunk. We are new branches. All of us came late to the party. We all stand on the shoulders of men and women who came before us. We dance on the shoulders of those who came before us. And we were included at the expense of people who came before us. And really, we were included ultimately at the expense of Jesus who went to the cross as a payment for our sin. So we've got to understand our place. We're new branches. But we also need to understand our role and God's plan for salvation. God has a mission. He has a plan that he is enacting right now to bring many, many, many more people to faith in Jesus. And it is to be the top priority, the most urgent priority of every Jesus follower to join with Jesus and join together with other believers to lead as many people as possible to be fully devoted followers of Jesus. And sometimes people, you don't like ask it out loud to me at church, but the question is basically this. I mean, is that really for everybody though? Like, is that for every Christian? Because I'm, I'm busy right now. I got a lot of stuff going on. I don't feel too good. And the answer is yes, it is for everybody. Now, as things in your life change, the way that you're able to engage and participate, and this is probably going to look differently, and that's okay. But I want you to hear me on this. It is anti-gospel. It is anti-gospel for any follower of Jesus to not prioritize and participate in joining him and sharing the good news of the gospel with as many people as possible. This is my guy. This is my guy, Don. I don't know if you've ever met Don. You should meet Don. He is a retired missionary from our church. The problem is nobody ever explained to him what retirement means. He is a nonstop share Jesus with everybody machine. And this week at ARC 18, he was there every night, the whole time, serving people and sharing the love of Jesus with people. Now, not everybody can do that. Not everybody's schedule and season of life allows for that kind of engagement. It's going to look differently for us. Sometimes. That's okay. Let me tell you about a lady in our church named Betty. She is, uh, she's bound to a wheelchair. She's battling the aftermath of a stroke recently. I just got to spend some time hanging out uh, in, her, in her house. And uh, you know what she told me? 
She said, every day that I get to serve Jesus from my wheelchair, it's a joy. And then she told me, she said, after my stroke, I prayed, God, would you use my stroke for your glory? And then she started to tell me how she's going about that. And I got a little tears in my eyes, so I had to wipe it up real quick, you know, because I'm a dude and I don't want to look like that. She said, because I've had a stroke every day, I got all of these healthcare workers coming into my house. I got new people coming into my house all the time. So every day, this is what she's doing. She's passing out Bibles. She's talking about Jesus and she's praying for all those people. She is my hero. Now, we, don't, we can't know God's plan exhaustively. At some level, there's mystery to it, but we can know enough. We can know enough to say God has a mission that's good for me, yet bigger than me. We could say God has a mission that's good for us, yet bigger than us. And today I want us to see what happens when we really see it. Like when we get it, when we see the gospel and when we understand the gospel, this is what it does in us. And writing to Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians who are experiencing a collision of culture. The Apostle Paul wrote this. If some of the branches have been broken off and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not consider yourselves, what's that word? Don't consider yourself superior to those other branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. Do not be arrogant, but tremble. So I want to make a couple of observations for us. What is our response when we understand the gospel? Number one, we're going to reject an attitude of arrogance and superiority. The Gentile Christians, just because they were in the majority now and just because they had found themselves shouldering the burden of leadership now, that didn't make them superior. The Jewish Christians, because they were the ones who came to faith first and probably the ones who started the church That didn't make them superior. All Christians are always supposed to be humble. And because we know Jesus, because we're followers of Jesus, we know this. We know that we are not superior to anyone, either inside or outside of the church. Instead, our disposition is like this. We embrace and express gratitude for our inclusion. We embrace and we express gratitude for our inclusion in Christ and being included with his people. Now, I've learned this in my life. I bet you've experienced it too. There are a few things that have the power to change my attitude like gratitude. There are a few things that have the ability to shift and fix my perspective like thankfulness. Let me tell you about my own sin, Rick Henderson's sin. In times when I'm feeling superior and sometimes I do. In times that I'm drifting into arrogance and sometimes I do. It almost always corresponds to a downturn of gratitude in me. It almost always corresponds to a lack of gratitude and thankfulness in me. And the Apostle Paul writing about the beauty and the splendor of the gospel, he could not help himself. He had to pause and write down some worship. And he said this, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor, who has ever given to God that God should repay them for from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. So how do we respond to the, to the gospel? We respond with worship. 
And that's what they did in those house churches in Rome. Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians, they gathered together. Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians, they worshiped together. Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians, they embraced a common identity in Christ that transcended and superseded their cultural and ethnic differences. And one of the reasons that we know that is just a short time later, just barely over a decade later, there was another emperor in Rome, and he recognized Christians as a unique community different from all the others. That emperor's name was Nero, and he specifically targeted Christians for persecution. It was brutal. It was heartbreaking. But the fact that at the the highest point of the Roman government, they recognize that there's a new community of people is astounding. And it shows the Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians embraced a brand new identity in Jesus that transcended and superseded all their previous cultural and ethnic differences. They were living out. And they were experiencing the kinds of things that the Apostle Paul wrote about in Galatians chapter 3 and Colossians 3. That in Christ, there's no Jew or Gentile. There's no slave or free. There's no male or female. We're all one in Christ. So let's talk about our unity. Our unity does not come by believing the same things. Our unity doesn't come from having the same doctrine. Our unity doesn't come from having the same behavior or a common culture or similar preferences. And it certainly doesn't come from music. Our unity is much bigger and is much better than that. Our unity comes exclusively from being in Christ. And we're still going to have differences, all kinds of differences, and that's okay. But in Christ, differences stop being a source of divisions. Even if some of the information I'm sharing with you today is brand new, I think we can all get and understand, well, yeah, it makes sense. This is why they had different colliding cultures in the house churches in Rome. Do we understand why we might have different collision of cultures in our own church, a collision of music culture in our church? What I want to share with you is a a timeline, and it's not going to make sense of things that have happened in African-American churches in the United States. It's not going to make sense of things that have happened to uh, multicultural churches in the United States. This timeline really does a good job of explaining what's happened in predominantly white evangelical churches in the United States. In the 1940s, after World War II, with a strengthening economy and the rise of suburbia, Something happened in our country and in European countries and other places around the world, something brand new in human history. It was the emergence of youth culture. Youth had more time than they had ever had before, and they had increasing amounts of discretionary income like they had never had before, and that impacted all kinds of things. One of the things that was impacted was the music industry. And beginning at this time and over the coming decades, you would see the emergence of significantly different types of music styles and genres. And over the coming decades, that would, have, uh, that would happen more rapidly. And what you began to see was a widening gap between the culture of youth and their parents' culture. Today, this is happening so quickly, we see a widening gap in the culture of older siblings from younger siblings. In the 70s, there was another development. People began to produce a new kind of Christian music, a new kind of worshipful music, and this was disruptive. Some people experienced it as incredibly positive. 
Some people experienced it as negative. Probably the greatest advocate of the new wave of music that was coming out was a man named Billy Graham. He accepted it. He encouraged it. He included it and promoted it at his crusades. But even with his monumental influence in evangelical churches in the United States and the 80s and even spilling into the 90s, churches experienced something that was described as worship wars. They were fighting over different kinds of Christian music. And Christians should never fight over music. That's unacceptable. But it's also understandable, isn't it? Because few things like music are as powerful to shape culture or few things like music are so powerful to express different aspects of culture. Now, you cannot convince me. You could try, but you can't convince me that God's sitting in heaven and is like, you know what? I really like the 60s a lot. That was the best music. <laughs> like, God's not up there picking time periods or genres. He's not doing that. God cares about the heart, and he happily accepts all expressions of worship that truly honor him. Now, back when churches were fighting over music and it was called the worship wars, I don't think they were fighting over worship. I think what they were fighting over was culture. And I think they were fighting over how culture was expressed through music. In the 1990s, something new happened. In the 1990s, many churches said, let's stop fighting about music and let's have different types of worship services. So churches started to have worship services that were just traditional music and then worship services that were just contemporary or modern expressions of music. Our church was one of the many thousands of churches in this country that did exactly that. There were uh, books that promoted it. There were all kinds of conferences designed for, for pastors and churches that promoted that. There were all kinds of articles written to promote this as really the next best step for church growth. Fascinatingly, the last article, the latest article that I can find published promoting this happened in 1999. That's when it was published. There might be some articles that came out after that. I just haven't been able to find them yet. But something else happened in the year, around the year 2000. We be, not only was having distinct types of worship services no longer promoted, we began to see a steady stream of churches transition back to only having one kind of worship service, even if they had multiple services. And there are a variety of reasons for that, but one of the biggest, most common reasons for that is this. Having distinct types of worship services divides a church's resources and multiplies the work of staff. And some churches were able to carry that burden longer than others but it will eventually catch up with every church. And recently, our church has had to come to terms with that. Recently, our church has had to acknowledge that. Now, nothing's changing right now, but we recognize that changes will be coming. And the kind of collision of music culture and maybe what feels like a shift of identity that we're experiencing is nowhere near as extreme as what was experienced in the house churches in Rome, but it's similar. And what was the solution for them is the same prescription for us. Remember the gospel. And when we remember the gospel, then we are ready to worship. After talking about all this, do you know the very next thing the Apostle Paul wrote down? Do you know the very next thing he had to say? It's this. It begins with Romans 12. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper, what? That's your true and proper worship. Worship is not a product of singing or music. 
Singing and music is a product of worship. And true worship, proper worship, really is surrendering our whole selves to who God is. And Paul continues. He says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Growth, maturity, comes by changing the way we think to match the way that God thinks. Changing the way we think to match the way God thinks, that's what renewing our minds means. And that is the only way to be able to see and agree with what God's good, pleasing, and perfect will is. And so I want to put up a prayer of response on the screen. And the prayer of response that I'm about to put on the screen comes straight from this passage. And it's not just for us and what we're particularly walking through as a church. This is really for every Christian everywhere and every situation. It's universal. It's timeless. Heavenly Father, is there a renewed way of thinking that's needed in me individually or this church collectively that will enable us to know and agree with your good, pleasing, and perfect will? Would you be willing to pray that? Could we pray that together as a church? Heavenly Father, is there a renewed way of thinking that's needed in me individually or in this church collectively that will enable us to see and agree with your good, pleasing, and perfect will? We've got this tree here to represent what it means to be in Christ and one brand new united people in Christ and we're going to keep it. And we're, I don't know exactly where it's going to go. We're going to try to display it prominently. And every time you see it, I want you to think about what we've been talking about today, what, what it means to be united in Christ. None of us are the trunk. None of us are, are, the, are the base of the tree. We're all new branches. If you have trusted in Christ by faith, you are a new branch. If you would trust in Christ by faith, you could be included 